According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. Verses 1 through 4 is the prologue. We've had three classes, well, two and a half, um, three classes with uh, introduction, giving background in terms of date and setting and authorship and all those details, uh, which is a lot of classes for a whole lot of we don't know, all right? Uh, We don't know the author, we don't know the recipients, we don't know the date, we don't know the setting, uh, we don't know the origin of where it was written from or the destination where it was written to. Uh, There's a whole lot of church tradition and speculation. And there are, there are educated guesses, and you know educated guesses are better than uneducated guesses. Um, but in, in, in any respects, uh, I, I have cast off my long-held Barnabas view, uh, which I've held for a long, long time, and uh, I mean 25, 30 years now. And uh, I'm starting to lean in that Luke camp. Uh, I think that the recent uh, scholarship as to the Luke and authorship of Hebrews is a very compelling case. And I don't know that there is a more compelling case that can be built for any other alternative uh, than the case that's been made for Luke himself. So regardless, if it was truly critical to know, uh, God would have told us the Holy Spirit is capable of attaching an author to the beginning of a book. Uh, Paul does it 13 times in the beginning of all his books. Um, But uh, the author of Hebrews does not. He begins, though, with a glorious introduction and some of the finest poetry and some of the finest of, of, uh, of Greek literature to be found anywhere in the New Testament, and it comes here. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. And that's what this is about. It's about God speaking to us in His Son, not speaking to the fathers speaking to us, not long ago, but now, in these last days, at the end of these last days. He has spoken to us in His Son. Not many portions, not many ways, not in the little piecemeal, little here, little there, but in the totality of the greatest revelation ever, God the Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what he revealed is what we take into our dispensation, what it is that we apply in our stewardship. We live the reality for which the Old Testament was simply a shadow. Uh, The substance belongs to Christ, and that's who we are. So we have the uh, introduction, and it sets the table for all of chapter 1. It sets the table for the whole book in uh, in understanding what it is that uh, God is teaching us through the book of Hebrews. Before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us for the deep teaching of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning thankful for Your truth, rejoicing in the progression of Your truth, the unfolding of Your plan, the nature of your design, Father, that has taken us from Alpha on the way to Omega, and each step along the way has been a further unfolding of the glory of your Son. And we thank you for calling us to be a part of that plan, a key part of that plan, really a unique part of that plan. And I pray that through the study of these doctrines in this powerful book, 
that you would open the eyes of our understanding, Father, that we would operate completely in, uh, in this so great, uh, not only salvation, but confession that we have in Christ. I thank you for our Savior, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. I pray that we would live out this truth day by day and moment by moment. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to take just a few minutes to wrap up the details we didn't get to last week, and then I'll switch slideshows. What I should have done was just grab the last slide that I didn't use uh, last week and imported it into this week's slideshow, and I wouldn't have to do the the switcheroo, but I'm not, uh, I wasn't thinking that far ahead. So uh, this is the slideshow we had for the last two or three weeks, going through the uh, points of study here, and I'm not going to repeat all this. Uh, if you missed it, uh, those MP3s are sitting on the website, just uh, minding their own MP3 business, and you can uh, you can review those as often as you like. And um, unknown author, unknown recipients, the dominant themes, and you're going to see these again and again and again, so stay tuned. But the dominant themes of better, greater, more, and uh, the the position we have in Christ is better than their, the Old Testament position. The church's position is better than Israel's position. It's better, it's greater, it's more in terms of everything that is to be unfolded in our stewardship. Better than angels, more glory than Moses, better things concerning you, better hope, better covenant, better promises, better sacrifices, a better possession, better sacrifice than Cain, a better country, a better resurrection, something better for us, and blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's a dominant theme, and that'll be in almost every chapter throughout the book, better, greater, more. Another dominant theme is the Sabbath rest, and we're going to learn what that Sabbath rest is. It's, it's, it's essential to chapter 3 and 4 in particular, the rest that we have, and it's not Saturday. It's not uh, a seventh day of the week Sabbath rest such as Israel observed in the Old Testament. It is day after day as long as it is called today. Today is our Sabbath rest. Today we enter into rest. And we enter into rest spiritually. We enter into rest mentally. It's a, it's a mental attitude that we have. It's not territory. It's not a geographic reference. We don't have to cross the River Jordan and occupy the land of promise. That literal land of promise painted a picture. The reality is us. And it's all day, every day. We want to understand that for what it is. And if we fail to enter that rest, Then we have the tragic circumstances of the wilderness, dying in the wilderness, and uh, the the foreshadowing of which was Israel in in the Old Testament, but the tragic reality is us today. I think the bulk of Christendom today is dying in the wilderness, all right? And the the bulk of Christendom, I'm talking Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, the whole planet of Christendom, very little of which is occupying that rest, living in the Word of God, abiding as disciples of Jesus Christ, and occupying that rest that Romans 3 and 4 and and 5 speak about. So we'll deal with that. Priesthoods and sacrifices from chapter 4 to chapter 10 and then more at the end on our priesthood and sacrifices. What do we offer up? How do we operate in our priesthood? And to me it's compelling, it's loud, it's clear, it's overwhelming. It's, it's, a, it's a huge blessing. It's one of the greatest treasures that a church age believer can have is to digest the book of Hebrews and operate in your priesthood. And it's uh, heartbreaking to me that I'm, I'm noticing a trend, uh, a trend among good men that I think are starting to back off from this and starting to walk away from the priesthood of the believer. 
And if you can believe it or not, it's happening more and more. And, and, and it's, uh, I think it's, well, I don't know what's sparking it other than the fact it's a general apostasy of our day and age where good men are starting to rethink and abandon certain things. And it's, it's sad to me. Because if, if you forget your ambassador function or your soldier function or your priestly function, you're, you're limiting the scope of everything God's called us to do. And, and priestly function is the highest of them all when it comes right down to it. So we'll deal with that. Repeated warnings, including five primary warnings. They are not warnings of losing your salvation, but they are warnings of dying in the wilderness. They are warnings of a, of a spiritual mental attitude death that is not resting in the land of rest, in the, in the realm of rest, the spiritual peace that he has for each one of us. We sang the hymn about peace just, uh, just a moment ago. And that's what we have. And we should be in that peace, in that rest, all day, every day. But when we fall short in our own carnality, in our own darkness, when we uh, don't lay aside the encumbrance that so easily entangles us, then we are dying in the wilderness. And that's, uh, that's a very present reality for all of us. The author himself includes himself in that warning and says any one of us can, fall, can have an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And uh, that puts us in that wilderness death. And we don't want to be there. Okay? R- relax, though. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation. <laughs> okay? That's the bad uh, doctrine that some people twist the, the passages to read and uh, try to scare people into thinking that if you, if you blow it, if you go apostate in the Christian walk, then you're going to die and go to hell. That uh, you used to be saved and you threw it away. All right? Relax. Okay? We're not going there. The Bible doesn't go there. And we're not going to take those five warning passages to, uh, to represent that, even though it could appear that way. The language is severe for a reason. It uses the most severest of terms for a reason. And it should get our attention. Ultimately, the book of Hebrews is in our Bible so that we can apply Old Testament truth. We can apply it today as New Testament believers. And we can apply every principle of the Old Testament. We don't throw away our Old Testaments. We love our Old Testaments. But those principles that are contained in the Old Testament, we want to bring it into a reality now for us, for the body of Christ, for a heavenly people that are applying the principles of the Old Testament for us today. And so ultimately, the overall theme of Hebrews is applying the Old Testament in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in light of the present work of Jesus Christ in heaven, and in light of the future work of Jesus Christ when He comes again. What he did in first advent, what he's doing now, and what he's about to do when he comes again. All right? And all three of those, if we're centered on Christ with what he did, what he is doing now, what he's about to do, then we'll do very well in taking the whole body of Old Testament doctrine and bringing it to our own application as New Testament believers, as members of his bride. Because guess what? We are a part of what he's doing now. We weren't a part of what he did in first advent. We weren't here yet, okay? But through baptism into union with Christ, we were ushered into that, were we not? We now identify with His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His session. And so even though we had no part in what He did, really, as believers, we do have a part in what He did. And that affects how we live today. Likewise, what He's doing now. He sits at the Father's right hand. He intercedes for us. What are we supposed to be doing right now? We're supposed to be intercessors as well. And the book of Hebrews makes that clear. It teaches us how to offer up our intercessory prayers, how to minister as priests 
we enter within the veil and we're not there for no reason. We're there for a very good reason. All right? Our priesthood is going to be clear. So it's applying the Old Testament in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in light of the present work of Jesus Christ in heaven, and in light of the future work of Jesus Christ when He comes again. Those three things. If we keep those straight, we'll, we'll handle the doctrine of uh, Hebrews just fine. Of course, uh, overwhelming use of the Old Testament. We spent last week looking at those. And the main exhortations are to faith and endurance. When we get to chapters 11 and 12, guess what? It's all about faith. It's looking at all these Old Testament examples. They walked by faith. Abraham walked by faith. Moses walked by faith. Noah walked by faith. All those heroes, heroes from chapter 11. It's all about walking by faith. And our walk is no different. We walk by faith just as they walked by faith. We just have more of a basis for our faith because we have a greater content. We have a greater canon. We have greater promises. And so our faith is grounded in completion, not simply in future expectation. So we'll have exhortations to faith and endurance. And you have all that hall of fame of chapter 11 that gives way to Jesus in chapter 12. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And so uh, with Jesus as our example, what can we not endure? See, how did he endure? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the right hand of God? What are you and I expected to do? For the joy set before us, what are we expected to do? We take up our own cross, and we endure that cross, and we despise that shame, and we are seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. The author of Hebrews makes a big deal about sit at my right hand. And that's where we are. And since uh, Hebrews makes a big deal about it, I'm going to make a big deal about it. And we're going to make sure that we all understand that, yeah, physically our bodies are presently seated on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. But where are we really seated? All right, where are we really seated? Well, you're seated, I'm standing. But where are we really seated? We're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And we've all entered within the veil. We are in the Holy of Holies. And that's why we're expected to operate in our priesthood. And I hope this reality comes clear for each one of us. It's an exhortation to faith and endurance. All right, here's what I didn't give you last week, and I wish I would have, because it takes about 10 seconds to load the slide and we would have been done. Uh, there's the slide, okay? This is the outline I'm going to follow. There's a thousand different outlines for Hebrews, and I started to make my own, but I like this one so well. I said, okay, I'm going to steal it and give credit, Okay? Sanctified plagiarism. It's not plagiarism if you cite your source. So I'm, I'm stealing from um, Zane Hodges. He wrote the Hebrews volume within the overall collection of the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And uh, so if you have the Bible Knowledge Commentary, you have this material already. You have the outline. It's, it's, uh, it's in there. Uh, I'm going to take verses 1 through 4 as the prologue, to the, not just the chapter, but the prologue for the entire book. And then I like the simplicity of this. and You can get into some really weeds and you can really get complicated with it. I think that keeping it simple is helpful because we, we focus in chapters 1 through 4 on the king son, all right, as opposed to the priest son. And we have the king son that's highlighted there in, in starting in 1-5, after we get through our prologue, we get to 1-5 and then we go all the way through the end of chapter 4 speaking about a world to come and a king to come. It's not been given to the angels. The world to come is being given to Christ and us in Christ. It's very clear. Not to the angels did he subject the world to come. And so there's a coming king. And that king son is emphasized. The Psalms that speak of that, Behold, thou art my son. 
right? Today I have begotten thee, and the Son has been enthroned. The nations are in an uproar, but I have installed my Son, I have installed my King upon Zion, upon my holy mountain. And so everything from Psalm 2, everything from Psalm 45, everything from Psalm uh, 110, everything from the Psalms that speaks of the King, it's the King's Son, this, brings, uh, this gets brought into the book of Hebrews here in these early chapters, uh, primarily chapters 1 through 4. And then we move into the priest son. And it's the same son. He is a king and a priest. And that's extraordinary, all right? The Old Testament didn't have that. But then we move into the priest son in chapters 5 through 10. And the king's son is also the priest son. And all the impact here, again, it comes back to Psalms. Thou art a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The father promised that to the son. We'll see this expanded in chapters 5 through 10. So uh, these are the divisions we'll use. In fact, we'll break down the classes. Uh, they'll get uh, listed on the website kind of in this, in this outline as well. Prologue is verses 1 through 4. God's king's son is Hebrews 1, 5 through 4, 16. God's priest's son is Hebrews chapters 5 through 10. And then the response of faith. The response of faith. Having been given all this doctrine, the impact of that through the first 10 chapters, what's expected of us? We need to be walking by faith. And uh, so the response of faith in chapters 11 and 12, then an epilogue in Hebrews 13. That's the outline I'm going to go with. That's the outline I'm going to follow. And uh, if you want a copy of that, shoot me an email and I'll send it to you. And, uh, or look it up in the, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary and uh, you'll have it. All right, so wrapping that up and switching to this slideshow. If I did it correctly, here we go. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's look at verse 1 and 2a. We're going to handle the first half of verse 2 together with verse 1. God, after he, and it's unfortunate that it starts with the word God, but that's okay. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. That's what I want to develop first, is this contrast in verse 1 and verse 2a. God spoke and God spoke. You got, uh, you got two verbs here, and it's the same verb both times. Spoke and spoke, okay? And, and the, 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 the Greek on this is, is powerful, it's beautiful. I'm going to share some of that. I might bore you a little bit, but it's exciting, so I'm going to try to share the excitement, Okay? Because it's, it's overwhelming as it comes across, and I think the English translation butchers it. Bugs me to death, okay? Because the many portions in many ways is what starts verse 1. The many portions in many ways long ago, God spoke, okay? And uh, the order on this, uh, it drives the point home in a way that English can't, okay? English is kind of trapped by the fact that we require word order to determine meaning, Right? Greek has no limitations on that, on that basis. So uh, they're totally free to reorganize the words and put the things up front you want to put up front. Take five P words and shove them all together to, to make a, uh, a powerful point, okay? And uh, you can, you know, a pastor can pound a point with a lot of P's, okay? And the author of Hebrews does this, Luke does this, or whoever wrote this book throws a bunch of P's at his, at his audience who are probably priests, all right? And it just jumps at it, and you go, wow. 
long, uh, many portions, many ways long ago to the fathers, right? Petros. Through the prophets, God spoke. And having spoken, He speaks again. And the verb is used twice. And that's what comes across. And this is really neat to see, uh, to see how it happens here. There are five P's. Five P's powerfully pronounce a prologue to this priestly paraclesis. The whole book of Hebrews is a paraclesis. It is an exhortation or an encouragement. And this priestly paraclesis begins with this prologue. Five Ps. And it's designed to just hammer, hammer, hammer. And even, uh, the, even the sound it makes p, p, is, is designed to be p. They call it plosive, right? It's p, p, p. And it, it just, it, it, it carries. That's what it's designed to do. And uh, I'll highlight a few of those for you here this morning. There are three adverbs that define how God spoke. Three adverbs defining how God spoke. And I didn't transliterate, I just left it the way it is, so if you don't read the Greek, then you may struggle a little bit. But I colored the pies yellow, right? You had pie in math class, so you know what a pie looks like, or a P, okay? 3.14159265 if you care for those kind of digits. All right. Um, so I colored them yellow. Uh, polymerose, kaipalutropos, palai. And it hits the, the PPP. That's the first three of the five Ps are all adverbs. And an adverb defines a verb, right? It modifies a verb. It tells how a verb is being done or where a verb, or why a verb, or it, it further modifies a verb. So three adverbs of how God spoke in many, uh, in many parts. That's polymerose, in many parts. Okay? This is a doctrine, by the way, we've studied already. We've studied in um, 1 Corinthians 13 on why we don't have the sign gifts anymore, why we don't have prophecy anymore, why we don't have miracles anymore, why it was in the early church they needed the sign gifts as the signs of a, of a true apostle. Why it is that they could know in part and prophesy in part, and how they could put those things together in the early church until the New Testament was written. So we've studied this already. If you were with us way back in the 1 Corinthians 13 days, we've had this study already. Vocabulary similar to what we have here with polymerose, many parts. God spoke in many parts. How many books do we have in the Old Testament anyway? And how many verbal messages were given in the process of delivering that written canon. Many portions in many ways. So Paul Morose speaks of the many parts. In many parts. And then Paulutropos speaks of many ways, many methods, many uh, approaches. So you can think of the, uh, tropos or tropos, again, with the poly prefix in front of it. So Paulumuros kai polytropos. In many parts, in many ways. Because some things don't communicate well in certain ways. If you're going to write a lamentation, that's a different way, you know, a lamentation or a dirge, that's a different kind of music than something peppy and celebratory, right? Could you imagine taking the lyrics to stand up, stand up for Jesus and then taking those words and putting it over in a real depressing funeral dirge type music? How, how hideous would that be? 
you know, how out of place, how inappropriate, it would not communicate. It would be a, a, a gruesome thing, right? Or likewise, take a, take a sad song, a slow, mournful song. And as slow as it is, as sad as it is, as tragic as it is, you know, the slow, tragic, like a country western song with your dog died and your wife left you and you lost your job. and every, I mean, everything is just awful. But take those words and throw it into a polka music, okay? Like Weird Al Yankovic likes to do. Throw it in a little peppy kind of a polka tune and try to sing it with an upbeat kind of musical. I mean, it's just, it's, it's comedy at that point. All right. So by speaking in many parts and in many ways, he uses the ways effectively as needed to, to communicate. And that's why we have poetry. That's why we have narrative. That's why we have prose. That's why we have, um, in, in the written canon, we've got such a variety of literature in the written canon. Not to say uh, the variety of the spoken truth as it was revealed. In many parts, in many ways, and then palai. Palai, long ago. Palai, right? They, uh, we use the palio prefix in a lot of things. Uh, paleontology, for example. Uh, they, the paleontologists are trying to study things from long ago, all right? And not really, they're just trying to use a godless uh, pseudoscience to deny God's existence. But there you have it. Paleography, uh, the study of ancient writings, okay? There's other palio terms that we have. So, polymeros, kai polytropos, kai uh, palai. In many parts, in many ways, long ago. And then two datives. The dative case, indirect object, two dative case terms. To whom and through whom God spoke. Who did he speak to and who did he speak through? He spoke through, or to the fathers, through the prophets. So again, I didn't transliterate it, I just put the, the text up there and you can see the pies for what they are. Tois patrosin, right? Patrosin, we have pater for father. We talk about the patristics when we talk about, or we talk about uh, different, uh, if, if we're not uh, moon bat feminists, we, we, didn't, we don't rage against the patriarchy, but we're okay with patristics and with the pater, okay? That's what we have here. Tois patrosin and tois prophetis to the fathers, through the prophets. So we have P, 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 five different times, hammering it away, hammering it away, hammering it away, and we still haven't said anything. All we've said is, in many portions, in many ways, long ago, to the fathers, through the prophets, God spoke. <laughs> okay? We finally get around to God spoke. It comes at the end of this long clause in a very beautiful way. And because uh, then it gets repeated with, in these last days, God spoke, has spoken to us in His Son. And there's two, uh, the verb is repeated twice, a participle followed by a verb, uh, followed by an aorist. And it's, uh, it's neat to see how this gets contrasted. So to the fathers, through the prophets. We have an audience that is uh, the, the data of to whom the message was given. And uh, the agents, the, uh, the, the people, the, the tools, God used prophets to do it. And uh, that's why there's a Hebrew canon, because it was delivered through the Hebrew prophets. All right? These are the five Ps. Now, I think we're familiar with this, and it doesn't take a lot of uh, 
imagination, if you have any kind of background in the Old Testament, you've, you're familiar with these stories. He has multiplicity messages, okay? As opposed to the singularity of the Son, okay? The multiplicity messages came via angel of the Lord visitations. Can you think of all the times the angel of the Lord showed up? You know, and uh, Abraham runs into the tent real quick and says, you know, fix dinner. And uh, he invites the angel of the Lord to stay there. Or other angel of the Lord visitations. Bunches of them throughout the Old Testament. And as the angel of the Lord visits, or how about in the Garden of Eden? They had fig leaves wrapped around them and here comes the angel of the Lord. So they hid themselves. All those angel of the Lord visitations were part of the polymeros and polytropos ways in which God communicated, in which God spoke to the fathers long ago. Uh, so the multiplicity messages came via angel of the Lord visitations, audible voices from the sky. Sometimes they didn't have the visual. They didn't get to see the angel of the Lord. They didn't get to sit down with them or eat with them, but they heard the voice, audible uh, voices from the sky. How about the burning bush? right? That was part of the long ago, many portions, many ways. He doesn't use that anymore. I, I encourage you, if your bush is on fire, put it out, okay? <laughs> That's not God speaking to you. Um, same thing with uh, talking donkeys, okay? The, that pillar of fire, the cloud, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Part of the many portions, in many ways, long ago, God spoke. And he spoke to the fathers. Uh, like I say, talking donkeys, when he got a hold of a prophet that way. Uh, different dreams. And uh, sometimes the dream was given to the prophet. Sometimes the dream was given to a king who had to get it interpreted through the prophet. All right, In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't know what his dreams were about, but Daniel was able to interpret for him. Or in the case of Pharaoh, he kept having these dreams and he didn't know what it was about until he gets Joseph out of jail. And Joseph was able to communicate the dreams. And all of those, God was talking. God was talking. God spoke. God spoke in many ways, in many parts, in many ways, through the prophets to the fathers. Uh, different dreams, different visions. A vision is like a waking dream. Um, prophetic teaching was given in uh, declarative oracles. In other words, thus saith the Lord. Okay? A declarative oracle would be given, a message would be given that that prophet would be charged to stand before the covenant people and announce, thus saith the Lord. And not every prophet had to do that. Daniel almost never, in fact, Daniel never did that. Ezekiel was the one constantly standing before the people in captivity saying, thus saith the Lord. Daniel never once had to, was never called to do that. He was serving in political office and he was recording his prophecies in, uh, in written form. Uh, so pro prophetic teaching was given in declarative oracles, demonstrative pantomimes. I love those, especially since uh, they were all in the Old Testament. I don't have to do them in the church age. <laughs> okay, Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years. That was God speaking, right? In many portions, in many ways, having a naked prophet walking around, uh, it was definitely a conversation starter. <laughs> it, uh, it sparked a whole lot of, what's he doing? What's God telling us? What's the message here? The message is, uh, my prophet is naked and you're about to be. Okay? Uh, when, when, when you get carried off into captivity, it will not be a pleasant experience. And it's going to be crushing. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be humiliating. It's going to be dehumanizing. 
And for three years, Isaiah submitted to that. Okay? Or other prophets. Uh, Ezekiel had to lay on one side for 40 days, and then he had to roll over and lay on the side for 390 days. And uh, he, was, he was demonstrating uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and their apostasy. Or uh, baking bread over a fire with uh, uh, the fire was made with human dung. Yuck. Okay? And then, can you imagine cooking your loaf of bread over a fire of human dung and then eating it? All right? That's why I think, <laughs> you know, Hebrews 11 talks about these prophets and says, men of whom the world was not worthy. You know, the things that God expected them to do, and they did it. And then God told Ezekiel, he says, your wife's going to die tonight and you can't grieve. You can't mourn for her, you can't have a funeral. And uh, he did. Killed his wife that night and Ezekiel had to go teach Bible class and demonstrate the principle and, uh, and not grieve. So uh, uh, the uh, demonstrative pantomimes, and there's many, many more, but we'll let those go. Animal rituals. You know what? Every time a, a, a lamb was slaughtered, God was speaking. Right from the very beginning. Right from when he taught Adam and Eve that uh, fig leaves didn't cut it. He clothed them with animal skins. What do you think happened there? Where did he get those animal skins? From formerly alive animals that are now dead animals, that had to die. Blood had to be shed. Death had to take place to cover for death. And God was speaking. God was teaching. Every animal sacrifice has doctrine attached to it. From the meal offering to the peace offering to the trespass offering to the guilt offering to every sacrifice imaginable teaches doctrine. God speaks through animal rituals. Tabernacle furnishings. Why was the silver, why was wood overlaid with silver? Why was wood overlaid with gold? Why, why were some furnishings pure gold without any wood? Why were, what, what is the doctrine in all these furnishings? Uh, what's the point in the linen garments? Why wear a turban? What's an ephod? <laughs> There's doctrine attached to tabernacle furnishings, to uniforms, to garments, to all of this. Shadows and typology. And God's speaking through all of this. God speaks through all of this. God commanded Abraham to walk up the mountain and sacrifice his son. That's typology. That's that's doctrine being taught. It demonstrated a father willing to sacrifice his son to teach the doctrine of God the Father and God the Son and what happened at Calvary. But 2,000 years ahead of time it was taught God was speaking to Abraham and to Isaac. And so through shadows and typology, God is speaking. And there's a lot of that in the Old Testament. Ultimately, all of these various portions in various ways were then inspired by the Holy Spirit through human authors to be placed into a canon of Scripture, the Hebrew canon of Scripture. And God spoke, and God spoke from Moses to Malachi. The multiplicity of messages through, from Moses to Malachi. Moses opened the canon with the Pentateuch, Malachi closed the canon. And so that multiplicity of messages, and guess what? It stopped for 400 years. It stopped. And there were no more written prophecies, there were no more spoken prophecies, there were no more prophets for 400 years. There was just an expectation and a waiting 
Ultimately, they were recorded in the Scriptures. And Paul addresses this, I think, in the Apostle Paul, Romans 3, he says, What advantage has the Jew, great in every respect? First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The great advantage to the Hebrew people is they were the custodians of the Hebrew Scriptures. The canon. The only canon until the Greek canon was then added to it, until the New Testament. And so the Hebrew people were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that's their great advantage. All right. So God spoke, but in these last days, He spoke. And we have the, uh, an application that comes there. And I like the word although. Um, we can do some different things with this to... to Bring it out of Greek and into English. Um, Although God spoke, He spoke. And I like that because it sets it forth as a contrast. And it sets it forth as a logical contrast more so than uh, simply a sequence. Okay? We have the aorist participle followed by the aorist indicative of laleo. This is the same verb used twice. The verb is laleo. L-A-L-E-O. Laleo. And... uh, Laleo is different from lego and different from logos in the sense that laleo stresses the oratory. It stresses the the actual auditory event of speaking, the activity of speaking. And a lot of people can speak without saying anything. (laughs) All right? So there's a difference between speaking and saying. God obviously doesn't do that. But uh, God, everything He speaks, He's actually saying something. Um, Unlike often what we do. Um, and so if you want to find a, a kind of a nuance between Lego and Laleo, that would be it. Lego would be said, then Jesus said, and then so, so-and-so said, right? But then somebody spoke, and he spoke saying, sometimes it gets doubled up, sometimes somebody will Laleo and then Lego, and that's kind of a Hebraic, brought into Greek. But, um, so we have the verb Laleo. Laleo is number 2980, if you want to do that as a word study or find it and I taught you last hour how to do a word study with your software. Um, you can do that with the software. You can do it with the Strong's Concordance. It's number 2980. 297 uses, so have fun there. There's a lot of speaking in the, in the New Testament. Okay, There's more legoing in the New Testament. But this is laleo. So it's used twice. The first time it's used is an aorist participle. The second time that it's used is an aorist indicative. Why does that matter? Well... Because the aorist participle precedes the action of the main verb. And so oftentimes it's not a present participle, it's an aorist participle. And it's not a present verb, it's an aorist verb. And so as we're looking at these, we have to combine them some way. God spoke and spoke. God spoke and spoke. And what's the connection there between God spoke and God spoke? It's the same God both times, it's the same verb both times for spoke. But one's a participle. And one's an indicative. Um, and one's a, yes, indicative. Okay? And so we relate the first speaking to the second speaking. I think we relate it uh, logically. We, we, it's, uh, we, it's called concession. And so it's a participle of concession. Although he spoke, he hadn't said everything. Okay? Although he spoke to the fathers in many, uh, long ago, in many portions and in many ways, Although he did that, that wasn't enough. Although he did that, there was more to say. 
Although he did that, it was not sufficient. Something great, better, greater, more had to be given. Okay? And you would think, I mean, what people is there like the Jewish people? Time and time again, the Scriptures ask, what people is there that has a God like our God? What people is there that has revelation like our revelation? What people is there that has what we have? What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. God spoke to them again and again and again and again in many portions in many ways. And although He spoke, He spoke. In at the end of these days, at the end of those days, at the last of those days, He spoke to us. And He spoke to us in His Son. This becomes significant. So, uh, God gave all kinds of words in all kinds of ways, but one word remained ungiven, waiting to become flesh and dwell among us. And when this word was given, this word was given to a virgin in a, in a manger, in the birth of a son, who grew, <laughs> who learned, who then became a teacher, and who then taught. And he taught the things that he received from above. He taught the things that he was given from the Father. And he wasn't just a prophet, although he was a prophet, but he was the begotten Son of God who was speaking things that could never have been given otherwise. Without the incarnation of the Son of God, the the message that he delivered could not have been given um, in any other way. So God gave all kinds of words and all kinds of ways, but one word remained ungiven, waiting to become flesh and dwell among us. And so I, I think the, uh, the Apostle John, when he was writing the, the book of the gospel, when he was writing chapter 1, I think he had Hebrews 1 in his mind. I think that the impact of Hebrews was such that it, it impacted the Apostle John when, under inspiration of Scripture, he composed his gospel. And he wrote, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Join me there. Let's look at John chapter 1. Take a look at it. John chapter 1. There's a lot of um, Bible skeptics and God-haters that um, think that uh, John was influenced by uh, Philo. That John was influenced by Greek uh, philosophy, that uh, because Greek philosophers had uh, an understanding of Logos, uh, that somehow that must have crept into John's thinking and it, it uh, controlled how John wrote uh, his, his gospel, which is ludicrous, all right? Uh, there's nothing in this gospel that reflects the, the Greek philosophers, it reflects Philo's understanding of the Logos or any kind of, you know, demiurge between uh, the gods and the creation, none of that, okay? But clearly the one who knew, uh, the most intimate disciple with Jesus Christ, knew the Word of God, and he writes this in, in such a beautiful way. In the beginning, and this is earlier than the Genesis 1-1 beginning, this is, the, this is the earliest of all beginnings we have anywhere in the Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This is eternity past. This is before anything else when all there was was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two of the three members of Trinity had a special relationship one with another. 
That's the Father and the Son. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's the eternal fellowship between Father and Son. And all things came into being through Him. So of everything that was created, who created it? God the Son was the agent of the Father's creation. We'll prove that here this morning. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was Zoe, life. And Zoe was the light of men. Zoe was the light of men. What do you think God was talking about when He said, let there be light? Okay? Because sun, moon, and stars don't show up till day four. But in Him was Zoe, was life. And that life was the light of men. Notice, not angels. Angels are beings of light, at least until they fall. Okay? And then they have to disguise themselves as angels of light. But in Him was life, Zoe. And that life was the light of men. And it's not biological life. That's bios. This is Zoe. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so in this, again, sweeping introduction, very reminiscent of the Hebrews' introduction, it's sweeping, it's grand, follows in that mode, follows in that tradition of Hebrews. And then, uh, of course, we're introduced to the witness of John. And he was not the light, but he came as a herald. He came as a forerunner. And then, verse 14, the Word became. You know, God eternally was, but then God the Son became flesh. He became something he was not before. That's the difference between is and became, right? Is and became. And you and I, we have no absolute is statements that we can make. Any am statement I can make, I can rephrase as I became. Right? I am a pastor. But I became a pastor. And I am a father. I became a father. I am a husband. I became a husband. Any I am statement I want to make can be restated as I became and, and demonstrate a, uh, a non-eternal capacity. None of us have eternal I am statements. Only God is the I am. He is the I am. And Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all I am in Trinity. And then the Word became something He was not before. Flesh is not eternal. The humanity of Christ is not eternal and His human body is not eternal. This verse speaks of not His soul, but it speaks of His flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Same doctrine out of, out of Hebrews 1. That He is the exact representation of His nature. That He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. The same doctrine that Hebrews 1 communicates, John 1 communicates. And uh, I believe it was written later. I have an earlier date in 67 AD for Hebrews and a later date in the uh, late 70s or early 80s for the Gospel of John. And so uh, we saw His glory. Glories are the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's interesting, here's another contrast. Um, John testified about Him, cried out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a greater rank than I, for He existed before me. He came after, but He existed before. Jesus Christ is unique in that. It's the only human being that had a pre-existence before his, his physical birth. 
He existed before me, but He came after me. For of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Here's a believer that digested the doctrine from the book of Hebrews. This is it right here, right? A greater, something greater than Moses is here. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him, exegeted Him. It's our verb for exegesis. Explanation. Okay? So when I get up here and I exegete and I tear apart things and I spend a lot of time showing you five Ps and all this stuff, that's to give the full, complete, the best understanding I possibly can give. Because that's what Jesus did to reveal the Father. He is the exact representation of His glory, of His nature. He exegeted the Father. And this is what is remaining. So everything in the Old Testament was leading up to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament has a fulfillment in Jesus. And everything He fulfilled in First Advent, He fulfilled things that are not yet fulfilled, guess what? They will be. It's awaiting Second Advent. It's awaiting tribulation and millennium and the Second Advent of Jesus Christ. God didn't just say, oh well, I I fulfilled most of them, I'm happy with that. (laughs) Okay, I missed a few. No, He didn't miss anything. In actuality, there's more yet unfulfilled compared to that which was first advent fulfilled. Far more, second advent, that await future fulfillment today. So, um, this is what we see here. Although He spoke, He spoke. Many parts in many ways cannot be the final word. Something or someone must be provide must provide a complete picture. Many parts in many ways cannot be the final word. Something or someone must provide com- complete picture. So, if you want to relate this concept to the First Corinthians application, you can do so. That's First Corinthians thirteen ten in a description of the early church and what happened there where they combined uh, church age prophecy with Old Testament canon and they were able to operate until the New Testament was written. And then the doctrine is taught there quite clearly, in part, in part, when the perfect comes, the partial shall be done away. And that the complete canon of Scripture, the complete uh, body revelation for the New Testament is done. We don't need the, the, the prophetic gifts any longer. We don't need because we have a canon. Most of all we have the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews tying together how to apply the Old Testament in in a New Testament way. I think the book of Hebrews was one of the biggest nails in that coffin that that, uh, as, as that was distributed, as that doctrine was digested in the early church, more and more prophets were finding themselves out of a job because the text was explaining Old Testament to New Testament believers. Likewise, Jesus is the complete picture for what the Old Testament spoke of. So many good ways here. There's Luke 24, there's John. I'm going to take those out of order. I'm going to read John 5, first of all. John 5, 39. This was such a rebuke. And uh, most uh, most of this chapter is read. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Jesus is speaking. God was speaking through His Son. And um, He'd done a miracle. A man that was lame was now carrying his pallet home. 
as Jesus told them, take up your pallet and walk. And everybody else just flips a wig, right? They get all uh, outraged. And um, how are you carrying your pallet? What are you doing? You're breaking the Sabbath. Oh, I'm doing what I was told to do. <laughs> okay? Who told you to do that? And uh, Jesus said, well, my father's working until now. I myself am working. They said, you're breaking the Sabbath. You did a miracle on the Sabbath, you Sabbath breaker. Not, you did a miracle, you servant of God. <laughs> but you did a miracle on the Sabbath, you Sabbath breaker. And Jesus said, my father is working, I'm working. And that makes him want to kill him. And so they try to kill him. And because he was making himself out to be God, in verse 18, they want to kill him. And so Jesus starts to speak to them in verse 19, and this is a, a rebuking message again and again and again. But in the context here, he gets down to verse 39 and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now there's nothing wrong with searching the scriptures. And this is a great verse to preach to a doctrinal Bible church. You search the scriptures. You exegete a text. You learn Greek. You learn Hebrew. You're, you're academically digesting gnosis. Don't miss the point. <laughs> What's it about? Because he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Don't search the scriptures and miss the, the whole point. The whole point is Jesus from an Old Testament context. I think also in a New Testament context, but it's looking back and we'll talk about that later. But, and then he says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. See, they knew the truth. They just weren't willing to come to Jesus. They knew he was the Christ and they hated him for it because he wasn't marching to their, their tune. You were unwilling to come to me. He doesn't say unable, he says unwilling. So that you may have life. Anyway, it's the scriptures that speak of me. And uh, in Luke 24, he had to teach them this. He taught them this twice after his resurrection. <coughs> in Luke 24. And um, I know it says 27 and 44. Here we go. <laughs> Wouldn't this be hilarious? Um, Luke 24, these two men on the Emmaus road and they don't recognize him at first. Jesus starts walking with them. And their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they can't believe he's clueless. <laughs> one of them named Cleopas. We don't know who the other one was, by the way. There is tradition that it was Luke himself, which I think would be hilarious as he records this story. Uh, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? How clueless are you? You've got to be the only guy in town that doesn't know what's going on. So he says, what things? And he said, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, a prophet mighty indeed and word in sight of God and all the people, how the chief priests and our rulers de delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. I, you know, I, I've never experienced this. I've kind of been waiting Actually, I have experienced this. If, if somebody doesn't know who you are and then they're talking about you and they don't know who you are, 
And that's kind of kind of hilarious when you say, "Oh, by the way, I'm I'm Pastor Bob," you know. Anyway, um, true story happened in Kansas City, and uh, they found out I was from Austin. They said, "Oh, Austin, Pastor Bob Bowen or Pastor's Austin Bible Church." Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's me. <laughs> All right. Anyway, well, this Jesus guy, and and he, they crucified him. And we had been hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We really, really, really were hoping that he was going to be the Christ. But they crucified him. So now, oh well. Guess uh, our hopes were for nothing. See, you see how confused they are? We were hoping that he was the Christ, but they crucified him. So he couldn't have been the Christ. Really? Wait a minute. What Old Testament are you reading? Christ must be crucified. So, um, he who is going to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's now the third day since all these things happened. Oh, what do you know? Coincidence, huh? Again, read the scriptures. What, something, something about that third day. And uh, then he goes on to say, and besides this, uh, some women among us amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find the body. And they came saying that they'd also seen a vision of angels who said it was, that he was alive, you know, but women, you, know, you can't believe them anyway. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, because who believes women anyway? But guess what? We found it just exactly as the women also said, oh my goodness. But him they did not see. And you know, they're preaching, it's kind of sad what they're preaching because they're totally oblivious to what they're really saying. So he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice, all that the prophets have spoken. God, after he spoke long ago in many portions in many ways. And it's all about him. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, in other words, from Moses to Malachi, the whole canon of Scripture, Beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them concerning himself in all the scriptures. Isn't that beautiful? And they still don't know it's him. Until <laughs> they say, hey, stay for dinner and teach us some more. And not until he begins breaking bread and blessing it that they, hey, they go, oh, wait. They finally realized who it was. Same thing happens because they go running back to Jerusalem and they find the disciples there in the upper room, same thing happens. They still don't believe it. They're terrified. While they were telling these things, uh, verse 36, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit or a phantasma, a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See, it is my hands, my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he showed them his hands and his feet. They still can't believe it because of their joy and amazement. So then he eats with them. And, and then in verse 44, he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's a powerful verse right there for Old Testament canonicity. Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. Today they have the same breakdown. The Tanakh the law, the prophets, and the writings. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I love that. 
to understand the scriptures that speak of him. That speak of him. So, Jesus is the complete picture for what the Old Testament spoke of. But upon the last of these days, God spoke to us through a son. Upon the last of these days, upon the last of these days, God spoke to us through a son. I'm out of time. There's a powerful parable. We'll start with this next week. The glories of sonship. God spoke to us through a son. He sent slaves, he sent servants, he sent prophets, and every last one of them was beaten and abused. And, and, uh, but then the father said, I will send my son. They will respect my son. No, not so much. <laughs> they seize the son. They kill the son so as to seize the inheritance. They say this is the heir. And just as they rejected the servants, they're going to reject the son. And that becomes significant as well. All right. So we've got a good start on the prologue. We could spend the rest of our life in this prologue. There's such meat in these verses. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. And I look forward to what's in front of us. Father, the applications to be made, the, uh, the blessings as we study to show ourselves approved. I thank you for your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you for his humility. I thank you for his faithfulness. I thank you for everything he accomplished on our behalf. It's eternal. It's secure. We can't lose a bit of it, Father, because it's all grounded in his faithfulness. And I thank you for these things we're going to learn in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.